This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Colorado has one of the highest teen suicide rates in the country. In El Paso County, home to Colorado Springs, the number of teen suicides has more than doubled in the last three years. Local high school students Dee Contreras and Kalia Hunter each made documentaries about youth suicide. They're part of a filmmaking project. They joined my colleague Andrew Dukakis in the studio, along with Jared Hindman of the state's Office of Suicide Prevention. Welcome, everyone. Um, Kalia, let's start with you. You're a senior at Palmer High School in Colorado Springs, and you made a film about an acquaintance who attended West Middle School, 14-year-old Dominic Saunders. He committed suicide during the summer of 2015, and another uh, student at the school also committed suicide that same summer. Why did you want to make a film about Dominic? Um, he was actually a student at Palmer when oh, he okay. suicide. Oh, yeah. okay. And so I decided to make my film about Dominic because I was friends with a lot of the people he was friends with. And I um, I saw the impact that his suicide had on all of my friends and just the community. And then I noticed when I got back to school that my school hadn't done anything at all about suicide prevention, despite the fact that that summer we had had two suicides. Absolute nothing, absolutely nothing was said. So I knew I needed to get more awareness out. And I also didn't want Dominic to be remembered as just the kid who committed suicide. I knew that he needed to be remembered as like who he was as a person. At the beginning of your film, Dom, as he's called, is dancing in a video. And his friends say he liked to make videos and post them on Instagram. You interview his friend, Atlanta Halliburton, about what those videos say about Dom's personality. Yes. He just connected with everyone. Through video editing, Dominic would just take these little moments throughout the day, like his happiest moments, and just put them in this little 15-second Instagram video. Really just captured the essence of the day. Like you could just sense the happiness. So, Kalia, you paint a picture of a kid who's generally happy. In Dom's case, his friends say he changed a lot after his mother's death from an illness. His father was serving in the military in Afghanistan at the time. You could just see it in his mannerisms. The sluggish kind of motion. uh, The drug use. We all tried to help him through, you know, when he was having a really bad day, but... We didn't really try and, like, help help him. He said something about it one time, like, I'm not going to make it to 40. Like, it's going to be over when I'm young. There's this sense here, Kalia, that these kids knew he was spiraling downward but weren't sure how to respond. There were also five suicides at Discovery Canyon High School in the area during last school year. What were your thoughts when you heard about those suicides? You know, I think that it's one, a whole, a result of like, like they say, it's cluster suicides. Like when one person does it, it increases the risk of other students doing it. So I think that probably had an effect. And I think what really is affecting these kids is the fact that there's no like formal education about mental illness and what to even do if your friend is showing signs of depression like we're high school students we're 15 14 years old at the time um some of us felt like we couldn't even talk to our parents and we didn't know how to deal with our friends like that what would you advise say your school to do i think that there needs to be 
Definitely more education, like maybe even just in health classes or maybe just seminars about just how to recognize the signs of depression in young in your friends and what to do when you witness that and how to be more effective in um, witnessing that. Yeah, because these kids really noticed it, but, but they didn't know how to act. Yeah. Um, let's turn to Dee Contreras, our other filmmaker. We're about to play a clip that has language that some people may find offensive. Your film is a self-portrait of growing up and attempting suicide several times, and you point to what you see as the trigger in your case, which is being gay. I remember just being pushed into lockers and just being called a fag, and just some days I just don't want to live anymore. You know, I just want to just stop breathing and just... Stop with this pain and just hurting and stuff. What do you think when you hear this clip now? Uh, there's a lot of things passing through my mind when I hear that. It's it's just so many things that, you know, just happened in the past. Uh, being bullied and, you know, just getting the death threat. Like, it, I can't believe it pushed me that far. Do you think the bullying you experienced as a result, a result of being gay really contributed to the suicide attempts or was there something else underlying um being bullied was definitely the main reason of my suicide attempts because you know like leah said i couldn't it was hard for me to go to my parents to really talk about anything and i wasn't opening up to anyone else and i felt like i was done with everything at that time you start the film out with you in dresses and with your hair in ponytails. You have short hair now and dress differently. Um, is the beginning of the film an attempt to show that your family wanted you to be different from who you turned out to be? No. Um, the beginning of my film just shows, like, how I was before, all the bullying, where I was happy and I can just be a kid again and... Now that I have short hair and stuff, it's just, it changed everything. Not my parents' view on me, but just everything in, like, school and, like, the community. Sort of the picture of you when you were younger is feeling carefree, and that changed as you grew older. Yeah. Jared Huntman of the State Office of Suicide Prevention, let's bring you in to put teen suicide into context. There's a lot of concern about hype when it comes to suicide, particularly in El Paso County, which is, has, has received a lot of national attention. Um, in 2014, there were seven suicides, 2015, 14, and preliminary numbers show 2016 will be a lot like uh, 2015. How does the county compare to the overall state numbers? So thanks for having me, Andrea. Uh, the, the reality is, is that Colorado in general has one of the higher suicide rates in the country and El Paso County, like many other counties, the rate fluctuates. The numbers vary from year to year. Um, but typically El Paso County has a suicide rate both for all ages and for young people that's slightly higher than the state rate, but not considerably higher. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're talking about teen suicide in Colorado. Dee Contreras and Kalia Hunter are with us. They each made films about teen suicide and go to school in Colorado Springs. Also with us, Jared Hindman of the State Office of Suicide Prevention. Uh, Jared, there's a lot of speculation about what leads to uh, teens to commit suicide or attempt suicide. Dee talked about bullying and its connection to, to suicide attempts. Is there evidence that there's a link between the two? 
So there's evidence that that bullying can be a contributing factor. And one of the challenges with this field is this is such a complex public health issue. We typically will say that there's not just one thing that's occurring in a person's life prior to a suicide attempt or a death by suicide. And I'm, I just met Dee this morning, and so I, my, I'm not in, my intent is not to um, suggest that she is an anomaly, but typically um, people have a whole variety of risk factors that show up prior to an attempt. And that's not always the case, but, but certainly um, that's, that's what the research supports. What about gender identity? Is that a risk factor? It is. Um, gender and sexual identity are, are, are definitely risk factors. In Colorado, we now have survey data from the Healthy Kids Colorado survey in 2015 that shows that students who identify as uh, gay, lesbian, or bisexual report higher uh, ideation of suicide, making suicide plans, and making suicide attempts. Dee, in your film, you talk about the loss of your grandmother as something that leads you to hit what you call rock bottom. You know, she was there for me my entire life. When I was in trouble or I needed someone to talk to or just just to have a hug from her, just to feel that comfort. Jared Heinemann, uh, in both of these films, the loss of a loved one seems to be a trigger. How linked are uh, teen suicide and loss? So, again, that's a risk factor that can contribute, um, and, and I think it's, it's a common risk factor. We know that one of, the, one of the large risk factors is a family member or a friend who has died by suicide. Um, so stories of multiple children dying in a community at the same time, and, and as Kalia mentioned, a cluster um, or contagion suicide, that does happen, and it happens more often among adolescents. And so I know that in El Paso County, it's something that they're really trying to wrap their arms around now to um, ensure that all of the students who are at risk for suicide have support and access to resources and services. Some kids experience loss uh, or they're gay or, uh, and they don't try to commit suicide. How much of a role do genetics and an underlying predisposition to mental illness play in suicide? Again, mental illness, it, the existence of mental illness is, is one of the major risk factors um, but as I mentioned earlier, it's, that's the complexity of this topic. There are so many varying factors. And what's the difference between someone who has suicidal thoughts and someone who attempts suicide and someone who dies by suicide? That's something we constantly grapple with. Um, and we don't have great answers yet. But, and so the messages for us are, particularly with young people, are what are the things that keep young people safe? What are the, the things we can do to build their resiliency, to make them feel connected to their school, to their family, to their peers, and to positive adults? Those are things we're really trying to enhance as well as combating the risks. Let's talk about clusters of suicide, uh, like at Discovery Canyon High School. Uh, there are some who think suicide is contagious and that media coverage adds to the problem. What do you think? Well, we certainly have quite a lot of research and support that shows that the media's coverage of suicide deaths is very important, particularly for young people. Because the reality is, is we don't want students who are at risk of suicide learning about and hearing about a young person who has died and, and um, for want of a better word, that those that death is glorified. Mm -hmm. And so how we share those messages, there are some really standard practices we ask the media to to implement when there is a death, particularly the death of a young person. Um, and 
and we know that those messages are, are helpful for people who are at risk. And the most important one is if and when you talk about a death, you be sure to talk about the resources that are available in that community for people who may be at risk. Yeah, there's this concern that, say, an Instagram page where someone is talked about after a suicide will kind of, um, you know, other kids will want that same attention. They'll see it and see that a person's being memorialized, and uh, that may lead them to suicide. Yeah, that's right. And again, it's it's typically kids who are already experiencing suicidal thoughts um, and are at risk for suicide who see that, and that, again, may be a triggering um, event like bullying may be a trigger or the loss of a loved one may be a trigger. And so that's, it's just another risk factor. And um, there's a program safe to tell where kids can call anonymously and report suicide. Um, there are also programs in, in schools. Can you talk a little bit about prevention um, methods, ways to get to kids directly? Yeah, and Kalia mentioned them, better education and awareness, just not just for the young people, but for the faculty, for parents, for the community. Not to normalize suicide as a problem, but to normalize that talking about when you're in crisis from anything is incredibly important. The other layer of prevention, I think, is, is if you're worried about someone, talk to them directly. If you're, a, if you're a faculty member who's worried about a kid, talk to them directly. If you're a friend and you're worried that you're going to get in trouble, you're going to lose that friend Deal with that after your friend is safe because um, the reality is, is if they're not suicidal and you think they are, if you have that conversation, you land there. And so it's really about normalizing this conversation just like we've normalized conversations with young people about drugs, about sex, about driving safely. Uh, mental health and suicide should be part of that conversation. And the final thing I'll say about prevention is we are really focused at the state level in promoting protective factors. Because kids are resilient and there's so many protective factors available to them. Our, one of our main goals is how do we build that prior to when a kid is suicidal. And for us, it's really focused on keeping kids connected and feeling attached to their school, feeling attached to positive peers in their lives and feeling attached to caring adults who they can trust and go to if they get to a place where they're in crisis. I want to ask Dee and Kalia about social media in the sense that um, – there, some people say there's a lack of connectedness uh, right now. And I wonder if you sense that among your peers. I guess it's hard to compare because you haven't grown up in a time when that didn't exist. But what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think that social media can definitely connect us in a way that was impossible before. But I do see the disconnect that can occur from it when people are just too engrossed in their phones and can't even interact with the people around them. But I do think it gives us the opportunity to connect with the people that we otherwise wouldn't and meet and network with them. So, so perhaps a good, um, a good outcome of social media. Dee, what about sort of this bullying that can happen that can spread to many people over social media? Um, definitely. I see like a lot of bullying like on the social media and there's not like a lot of people that are willing to just step up for the, the people to, you know, try to stop it. But I think now that technology is evolving, um, there would definitely be more resources for those people to go out and find. Can you give me an example of, of bullying that might happen on social media? Uh, there's been a few at my school, actually. So um, my sophomore year, there was a page started. It was called, like, Palmer Secrets, and it was just a page dedicated to um, 
like spreading rumors about people at my school. And most of the people weren't necessarily like really hurt by it because it was kind of a joke. But um, the person who made it did end up getting in a significant amount of trouble. So that's just a way that bullying can be taken to a new, a new level. Like there's an anonymous factor. So you don't even know who's saying these things about them. So, And it's not just, say, six kids. Uh, it, it could be hundreds of kids. Yeah. With social media, you're able to reach a wider network of people. Dee, I want to play a clip from the end of your film that's very hopeful. There is just so much that we can accomplish in life. We can find true love and have kids and have a family. Suicide is something that we don't want to talk about. But bringing this to people's attention, I hope it does make a change because your life is worth it. Do you still struggle now with depression? Do you worry that by making this film um, or a film like this, it can seem to people that you fully recover from uh, suicide, depression, uh, suicide attempts, when in fact it can be a continuing battle? Yeah, um, it's still a continuing battle. You know, I don't know, you know, how long it's going to take to recover from depression, but it's I'm slowly working there and there's. Uh, since I made this film, you know, from the Youth Documentary Academy, you know, it's opened up so many windows for me. Um, there's not one thing that I can't tell my parents anymore. So I'm more open with them and more open up with my girlfriend and to other peers and teachers and stuff now. So you're saying that making the documentary allowed you to talk to your parents for the first time? Not for the first time. It's I... Ever since I was little, I used to bottle things up. Um, I was—I wouldn't say I was an angry kid, but I had my moments. Um, I didn't—I felt nervous and scared to tell my parents because I, I never thought I would um, actually attempt suicide. Um, I never thought, you know, I would do any of it. But this film just— it makes me more comfortable because this is the biggest secret I've ever kept from my parents. Mm. Kalia, what did you learn from making this film? So this film, similar to D, it allowed me to deal with, like, my own emotions involving um, Dom's suicide because, like I said earlier, I wasn't necessarily best friends with him. He, he was more of an acquaintance that I had hung out with just a few times. But myself, I was extremely upset after this happened, but I felt like I wasn't allowed to be as upset as his closer friends were. And so I bottled up, like, my own feelings and then mixed with a lot of stuff. It just it turned into a pretty bad situation. And so by making the documentary, I learned a healthy way to express my emotions better and how to be more open and how to have these conversations with people. And now I've seen just like the power that just opening up the conversation can have. Yeah. Well, thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Kalia Hunter is a senior at Palmer High School in Colorado Springs. Dee Contreras is a senior at Widefield High School, also in Colorado Springs. Both made documentaries on teen suicide. We also heard from Jared Hindman, who's with the state's Office of Suicide Prevention. You can find resources on teen suicide and ways to get help at CPRnews.org. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. 
Monday was the first official day of business for President Donald Trump, and one of the few reporters covering the proceedings was Mark Matthews, Washington correspondent for the Denver Post. Matthews' work as a pool reporter came days after some tense and controversial exchanges between journalists, President Trump, and some administration officials. Matthews is also covering how the Trump administration's decisions affect Colorado. He joins us by telephone from Washington, D.C. Mark, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, To start, what is a pool reporter and what are some of your responsibilities? Well, first off, it is not, it's very exciting, but it's not terribly glamorous. Uh, The briefing room where you spend a lot of your time is about the size of a large basement. And uh, and when it rains, as it did on Monday, it it smells like one, too. So (laughs) (laughs) what you spend a lot of time doing is uh, following around the president. Uh, as he goes about different activities. Uh, When I did it under President Obama, we would go to a speech a few blocks away when he was signing some orders in the Oval Office, um, having some conversations with people coming to the White House. And and your job as a member of the print pool, which is made up of members of of, uh, print and broadcast and radio, is to relate to the other reporters what's happening. You You can't fit 100 people in the Oval Office. So about 10 people, 10, 15 people are selected to go there on a rotating basis to tell everybody else what's happening. Um, And so what you do is you write up the reports, and oftentimes what you'll see is a line of reporters, a line of journalists, just quickly tapping out what's going on on their iPhones to quickly send to everybody else. And there are a lot of protocols and a lot of traditions there, but it's it's a longstanding tradition among the press here in D.C., Now, on Friday, one of the pool reporters, Zeke Miller of Time magazine, erroneously reported that a bust of Martin Luther King Jr. was missing from the Oval Office. That, along with photographs from President Trump's inauguration, were examples the administration has said proved the media isn't being fair. And that prompted a heated response from Press Secretary Sean uh, Spicer. Let's listen to a clip. That's what you guys should be writing and covering, that this instead of sowing division about tweets and and false narratives. The president is committed to unifying our country, and that was the focus of his inaugural address. This kind of dishonesty in the media, the challenging that bringing about our nation together is making it more difficult. There's been a lot of talk in the media about the responsibility to hold Donald Trump accountable. And I'm here to tell you that it goes two ways. We're going to hold the press accountable as well. The American people deserve uh, deserve better, and as long as he serves as the messenger for this incredible movement, He will take his message directly to the American people where his focus will always be. What were your thoughts as you heard the press secretary speak Saturday evening, knowing you'd be at the White House on Monday? Well, certainly it upped the the pressure a little bit, given the amount of attention. But, you know, one of my first thoughts there was the, the pool reporter that you said immediately apologized and corrected for that mistake. And I think that's important to show because, because these pool reports, you, you often do find addendums, clarifications, and corrections to this. You know, when I was doing my pool report on Monday, I had to send a, a quick correction as well. I, I made a typo in, in a quote from Vice President Pence. Um, like he said, the, the, the word courage in a quote, and I said the world, and I wrote, and I quickly corrected it. And this is what happens again when you're on deadline. But I guess the difference here is that the reporters and the media, we have a process and a mechanism to correct and clarify mistakes. And we take that very seriously. And I think, you know, the question for the White House, you know, they're they're saying that they're going to hold us accountable. Well, that's fine. We should. We should be held accountable. 
but then set up for yourself your own mechanism for correcting your own mistakes. But isn't there a concern that sometimes these corrections may be overlooked or not promoted as, as strongly as a story? Uh, for the pool report? For, for or the pool report. For the pool report. Well, I mean, again, the pool reports are sent out, you know, for, for the reporters to use. And, you know, and, and again, the, the correction that happened for the uh, Martin Luther King bust immediately happened. Hmm. And I, I think this gets a, a little bit of the, the tension that happens here with pool reporting. Pool reporting is inherently one-sided. Um, you are there to record what's happening with the president. You are not calling out the sources. You're not going to other people. If it's a Democrat, you're not going to Republicans. If it's a Republican, you're not going to Democrats. You're saying, the president said this, and that's what he did. Uh, I guess the, the difference is, is that you're, you're trying also to be as insightful as possible, that, that you're not just a stenographer. You're capturing the mood of the moment. You know, more than just it was sunny out. It's like, well, this was happening, that was happening. You're trying to pick up the, these details so that everybody else knows what's going on. And, and some details, you know, I, I can see why the MLK bus was important. That is, if true, that would be a very important detail, which is why the pressure is always on, you know, to be as insightful, but also to be as accurate as possible. And, and, and is that... So, you wrote a story for the Denver Post where you described your position in the poll as kind of being a high wire act. Is this kind of what you're talking about? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll tell you that, that you know, based on my experience on Monday, I do wonder, you know, how President Trump will, will use and interact with the pool, you know, going forward in his administration. I'll tell you a couple stories out of Monday. So, uh, one of the first things that we were called to do at the pool was to attend a meeting of President Trump with union leaders. So the pool, we were brought into the Roosevelt Room, which is kind of a very, uh, it's a very crowded room where dining room table takes up most of it. And, you know, we went in, Trump, Trump gave about 10 minutes of remarks. We wrote them down. We blasted them out. We sent them out so people knew about it. And then we went, then we went back to, uh, the, to the briefing room. And, you know, this happened a couple times under the Obama administration. You go into the Roosevelt Room, the president makes a few remarks, everyone smiles at the camera, we leave. Um, but what ended up happening about 45 minutes later, we get, we get summoned again to the Oval Office for, uh, for Donald Trump, again with the union leaders, all standing behind him at his desk for a two-minute photo op. I was like, well, didn't we just take this? Um, but we did it again, it was fine. And then a similar experience happened later in the day. Trump was having a meeting in the East Dining Room with, or sorry, the State Dining Room with congressional readers, leaders. We go in, um, do the same thing. We take down notes, um, just a couple remarks, see who's there. There's Schumer, there's Pelosi, there's McConnell, and then we leave. As we were walking back to the press briefing room, like again, we, we, we went, went through the White House and we were walking back to the press briefing room. We weren't even there yet, and we get summoned again for another photo op. And we go back, we go back up the stairs and through security and past Secret Service. And there another two minute photo. This time, everybody's sitting at the dining room table. Now, don't get me wrong. Like this is a new, this is a new administration. They're still trying to figure things out. They're trying, this is the, the, the verve and the energy of the first 100 days. And, and I'm comparing that a little bit to my experience at the tail end of the Obama administration. But, you know, those, those two sort of back-to-back experiences that, like, you know, being called twice to the same event for two different photo ops, um, that seemed different, seemed interesting to me. 
Well, so in light of these tensions that you appear to be seeing, how do you approach covering someone who continually rebukes what you do or uh, says you're not doing it well? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, the job is still the same. What we do is still the same, which is to, to try to tell the news as precisely as possible. I mean, it, the job is no different. Um, perhaps, you know, it's, uh, there's, there are more like a slings and arrows in our direction, but the job's still the same. On Monday, ProPublica reported the administration froze grants and contracts by the Environmental Protection Agency. Also, the Center for Disease Control canceled a climate change conference, and other agencies have been told not to provide, quote, outward-facing documents and statements, including the USDA, to the public. These agencies have an impact here on in Colorado. What have you learned about how these and other actions might affect the state? Uh, right now, we're, we're still trying to go through that. We're tr- still trying to understand some of these executive actions. The, the White House hasn't put out the text of the executive actions and orders as quickly as we would like to be able to figure out. And so uh, if there are any federal workers in Colorado listening to this program, please send me an email. Mark Matthews of the Denver Post. Let me know what's happening at your agency. Um, because we're, we want to understand and we want to be a voice, for, you know, for, for everybody in Colorado, if you're a federal worker or not. And so we're trying to understand uh, and also trying to understand what a repeal of the Affordable Care Act would mean, too. We've wrote, written a couple stories about that. We'll keep following that. And that seems to be something you'll continue to do along with other stories as you as you uh, stake out Washington, D.C. with the uh, the press pool. Absolutely. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Nathan. Have a good one. Mark Matthews is the Washington correspondent for the Denver Post. On Monday, he was a pool reporter in the White House for the first official working day of President Trump. He joined us by telephone from D.C. to talk about that, as well as the relationship between the president, the administration and journalists. The economy is booming on the front range, but there's a recession sweeping across the rural corners of the state. The problem is really simple, yet intractable. Prices are stubbornly low for things like oil and gas and corn and wheat. As CPR's Ben Marcus reports, cattle ranchers are finally feeling the pinch, too, as the price of beef drops. It's not hard to understand why Todd Ingley felt the calling to work on his family's ranch. It's in a beautiful corner of Evergreen, about an hour from Denver, nestled in a small valley surrounded by steep cliff faces. I can remember being down in one of the pastures with the cows, and I just loved, I just loved standing there, walking out there and just sitting there, watching them, being with them and smelling them. And I think that's what, something, that's what kind of planted that seed in my heart. It's a good thing the ranch is pretty, because the beef market isn't. The last two years have been trying. Ingley, who developed his family's ranch into his company, Ralston Valley Beef, says prices for his cows hit record highs and then suddenly fell to record lows. That's a big, that adds a big ouch into the system, for sure. Cattle ranchers did the rational thing when prices increased two years ago. They built up their herds. They expanded their operations. Ingley is president of the Colorado Cattlemen's Association and chairman of the Colorado Beef Council. So he talks to lots of ranchers, many faced with low prices now because of oversupply. I know a lot of guys that have said, I've I've held these cattle back as long as I can. I got to move them. One, I'm out of hay or I don't don't have enough money to keep feeding them. So I just got to get them sold. They can't store cattle in a silo and wait for better prices, like corn farmers. So some guys lost a lot of money. In fact, Colorado's farm and ranch income has hit its lowest level since 1986. John Campbell has seen this firsthand. He runs the Winter Livestock Auction in La Junta, in the far southeast corner of the state. He says the recent highs and now lows have been like a roller coaster. 
Well, it is, but uh, we're, we're kind of used to that. That's essentially the nature of agriculture, though maybe not to these extremes. Campbell says ranchers weren't complaining when prices were high. They saw windfall uh, profits there for about two years. And, and uh, being of the conservative nature that most ranchers are, most of them put that money away because they knew it wasn't going to last. Meaning they've experienced many ups and downs in the market before, and they know how to handle them. Ranchers and farmers are on average older than they've ever been. Campbell says he does feel sorry for folks who are just trying to break into the ranching industry more recently. And uh, we have a number of our customers, a younger uh, uh, generation that, that, that tied into some awfully, awfully high-priced land, high-priced feed, and high-priced cows, and they're having a hard time now. And that will likely continue. Cattle prices have been slow to rebound. And the strong U.S. dollar will continue to hurt international exports of beef. In fact, Campbell says a strong dollar means it's cheaper for U.S. meat packers to import beef from Mexico and Brazil, taking business away from local producers. Don Thelmany, an agricultural economist at Colorado State University, says all of this is happening at a time when farmland and labor costs keep rising. There's a couple of the expenses that are just going to continue to have upward pressure. And so when we have um, lower revenue years like this, it's, it's never a good case for agriculture. She says several years ago, some ranchers and farmers were helped by oil and gas royalties for drilling on their property. But with oil prices also low, those royalty checks aren't what they once were. Professor Thilmany says this is bad timing for an agricultural industry hoping to transition to a younger generation. This year is not going to be the kind of temptation for someone to want to return to that sector that you'd hope. And so this is probably really going to slow down some transition plans where um, if you're thinking about the next generation or some new farmer taking over, this is not a, a great year to entice them back. That brings us back to Todd Ingley in Evergreen. The 49-year-old says, sure, it's not easy to be a rancher, but that's part of the point. I think that builds that, that tenacity that I admire so much in people in my business. Still, like most people in his business, he's hoping prices rebound soon. And so do the rural areas that depend on ranching, since livestock makes up the vast majority of the agricultural sales in Colorado. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. You can find more reporting by CPR's Ben Marcus at CPRnews.org. Well, the Grammy Awards are a few weeks away, and one of the more surprising nominees this year comes from the Contemporary Classical Composition category. This is a piece called Conversations with Nijinsky. It's music by Kip Winger, who's best known for fronting the metal band Winger in the 1980s. And while the band still tours occasionally, in recent years Kip's been composing orchestral music like this. Winger grew up in Colorado, and his music career has taken him all over the country. He joins us now from Nashville to talk about his journey from metal frontman to Grammy-nominated composer. Kip, welcome. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, a lot of metal bands like Winger don't get much respect from the, quote, musical establishment. What's it like uh, to get a Grammy nomination for this disc, which is called Conversations with Dijinsky? 
uh, very surreal, actually. Mm-hmm. I woke up one morning and uh, got an email from a friend of mine who who uh, said, congratulations. And, and I was like, for what? <laughs> and uh, I saw the uh, nomination. And she, You're nominated for, a, for best classical composition. And I was shocked because I we entered the album, but... I didn't think there was a, you know, a shot to get a nomination. I basically forgot about it until that day. Oh, so you entered as a fluke, or did you actually? Is that what it sounds like? Well, no. We, you know, when you put records out, you enter for the Grammys, and yeah. and uh, and uh, actually, a friend of mine entered the album for us, and uh, you know, you basically hope for the best, and uh, the outcome was a shocker to me. And now, your, yours isn't some overnight classical success. You studied classical music for more than a decade after Winger peaked in popularity. How far back does your interest in orchestral music go? So I grew up in Colorado, as you know, and um, I studied uh, classical guitar with Sam Guaranacha at University of Denver mm-hmm. um, as I was rocking Van Halen at night in the clubs. And uh, I, I, that, at that time, I got an ear for Baroque music. And shortly after that, I began studying ballet because a girlfriend of mine wanted to do it, and none of her friends would do it with her. And I was in karate, so um, I thought, "Yeah, that sounds fun. I'm all stretched out. Let's let's try this." And I, when I took one ballet class, there was uh, Debussy and Tchaikovsky coming out of all the rooms, and I was um, completely transfixed. And from that point on, I listen to classical music only pretty much so you listen to classical but uh, let's listen to a a track here from winger Uh, this is headed for a heartbreak uh, a winger track from 1988 Now, is there a different writing process for a rock song like this versus an orchestral piece? It's interesting that you picked that song to play right there because the verse is in a is in Lydian mode, which is a raised fourth degree of the scale. And so by the time I had written that, I was studying composition in New York privately with a guy named Edgar Grana and, and uh, you know, trying new things with rock music. I long since played all the Led Zeppelin and Beatles songs and Grand Funk and Jethro Tull. And I was always leaning on the prog- progressive rock side of things and uh, trying to push my skills further. And uh, that was, you know, an example of a song that I was, you know, at the, at the stage of my development at the time was trying to push the envelope. So... Um, to answer your question, though, for me, it's very similar, actually. Um, the orchestra has a power in it intrinsically inside the, the, the sound of the orchestra that you can't actually get in rock music. Um, rock music is very powerful, but very narrow. So um, when I really got serious, I was about 35. It was after my band had disbanded uh, after our thir- third album in, in 94. 95 and in 90, 1997 I went to study privately with a guy named Richard Herman at University of uh, New Mexico and I was living in Santa Fe so 
began the process of actually learning what you would learn at university. And then I moved to Nashville and studied with Michael Keurig, and he introduced me to Richard Danielpour, who really took me over the edge and uh, helped me see the light of the whole process. So it's been a long journey, but and, and this is a long-winded answer to your question, <laughs> but for me, it's very similar. You... Um, have an idea. Most artists will see a vision. You know, I don't think I'm unique in that way. You'll see something and then uh, have a spark of an inspiration and then spend a lot of time trying to realize that inspiration. And both with rock and with classical. It, it, it yeah, absolutely. Like. There's a, yeah. I mean, you, for me, I a see the music. Song, you know? Exactly. Exactly. You're tuned to Colorado Matters. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Kip Winger. He fronted an 80s metal band but has since turned to classical music, and he's been nominated for a Grammy. You mentioned that you studied ballet, and, and I've, I've heard you even danced with an orchestra at Betcher Concert Hall in Denver in about 1979. What do you remember about that performance in Denver? I was again. I've, I'm one of these people that gets transfixed by the ambiance of the uh, concert hall and the orchestra. So, I was 18 years old, and uh, I was in. There was a small dance troupe called Colorado State Ballet, and uh, we were doing the the Britain. Um, oh, now the name escapes me. For children, the the piece um, guides a guide to for young people to the orchestra. And uh, so I had a part in, I was, you know, dancing one of the instruments and... Uh, uh, the Young Person's Guide remember, to the Orchestra, right, right, right. A Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, correct. So um, it was one of my first times in a concert hall and, uh, you know, these are the um, first impressions that I had of being around that sound live and I'll never forget it because, it, for like I say, it's very, very powerful when you're standing there. In, um, and uh, so I've kind of been on a pathway to try to recreate that feeling for myself. And ballet plays a big part of your Grammy-nominated piece, Conversations with Nijinsky. And we're going to talk about who Nijinsky was in a minute. But first, here's a little more of that piece. Vaslav Nijinsky was a famous choreographer. How is this music a conversation with him? So at the time, I was reading a lot about Nijinsky, and I was composing this piece. Uh, uh, it was the follow-up piece to the first ballet I had with San Francisco Ballet, um, choreographed by uh, Christopher Wielden. And, you know, I was going to write another piece for Chris, and... Um, Basically, I was making sketches, and I was reading um, about Nijinsky, who was really the gr a v ground zero for male ballet dancers and choreographers. He choreographed Rite of Spring and Afternoon of a Fawn, and it was all very edgy. And I've always been interested in the ballet and writing music for ballet, so I didn't actually know it at the time. I was reading um, several books about Nijinsky, and 
composing this piece at the same time. And, and at one point in the writing process, I sat down. It was during the, it was actually during the movement you're playing right now. And um, I felt Nijinsky's presence somehow, um, and I and I thought to myself, "Wow, I'm I'm conversing with this great figure." And so, whether it was in my imagination or real, you can you know leave that up to your own assessment. But I it was very powerful, and I thought, "Oh, I'm 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 actually talking to Nijinsky here." So I see these pieces as the unseen dances of Nijinsky. Of, of uh, you know, in my imagination, he's choreographing these dances. I want to hear a little more uh, of this of this piece here. This music reminds me a little of a John Williams movie score, like there may be a dinosaur coming out of, of, of the screen in front of me. There's a lot of sense of action and, and, and color to this music. Is that what you were anticipating uh, with this? Well, for me, I um, this for that particular movement um, was inspired by a composer named Honegger. If you listen to Honegger, the first movement of uh, the Third Symphony by Arthur Honegger, you'll hear a similarity in there. There's a power in that I was trying mm. to capture. Honestly speaking, I never listen to film music, um, huh? and I never see films really. So, uh, so no, <laughs> everything that I everything I draw. I mean, of course, I've seen Star Wars and this kind of thing, but I. Um, Everything I draw upon is is uh, from uh, probably about 1900 on into current classical concert music, John Corleano, etc., Richard Daniel Poor, who I studied with. But uh, so in this movement, I was really, um, and I also have also been trying to find classical music that rocks like a rock band because that's where I come from. So, well, have you gotten um, feedback from winger fans? You know what? The biggest surprise in my whole life is that all my all the fans that come to my shows buy, have bought the record, and they all love it. I haven't I haven't heard any bad feedback from the rock fans. I've heard a couple people say, "Yeah, it's not my thing." When are you going to, you know, put out another Winger album? But for the most part, um, I get a lot of uh, quote mail now email by. Uh, winger fans that are now uh, attending concert halls, going, "I had no idea. This is incredible." So it's that's kind of a cool thing, and I'm, I uh, I did a distribution deal with Naxos Records, and I am you know kind of trying to consider myself as the ambassador for uh, you know rock to classical, you know the uh, the the marriage between the two, and I've talked about it a lot with the president of Naxos, and anything I can do to expose rock fans to classical music, um, you know, I'm all about it. Do you feel this is a second act in your music career or just a continuation from what you've been doing for your whole life? That's an interesting question. I Alice Cooper, I played with Alice Cooper when I was 24. He used to, and I used to write, you know, exercises on the bus and they'd all look at me weird while, you know, they were, you know, the whole band would be partying and I would be, uh, you know, writing counterpoint uh, exercises. So... I, I've always known that I wanted to be here since I was in my early 20s. Kip, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Former Colorado Kip Winger, who fronted the 80s metal band Winger, his classical album Conversations with Nijinsky, has been nominated for a Grammy. 
That's our show for today. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.